We are surrounded by technology every day. From smartphones to self-driving cars to vaccines, human innovation permeates every facet of our lives, both for good and for ill. And when it comes to tech, we often ask the question, what does it look like to use technology for the glory of God? And yet there's an even deeper question that we all too often fail to ask. What are God's purposes for our technology? In our interview today, writer, journalist, and tech optimist Tony Ranke and I discuss what the Bible has to say about human innovation and the things that we create. And spoiler, it's more than you think. We also discuss why Christians are so often attracted to tech dystopianism, the future of AI, Facebook's new metaverse, and more. Tony works as a senior writer for Desiring God and is the author of a number of books, including 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, and most recently, God, Technology, and the Christian Life from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. So anyone who knows you, Tony, uh, maybe heard our previous interview or has read any of your books or articles, dozens of articles you've written, uh, would know that you have an interest, a keen interest in technology and the way that it is uh, present in our lives, shaping our lives uh, for good and ill. And uh, I want to get into a lot of those themes here uh, today. But before we jump into that, it's interesting to learn a little bit about your family's connection to uh, new technology, the rise of new technologies, and going back quite some time even to your grandfather. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, as, I, um, as I've gotten older, I've spent more time in the architectural drawings and the patents of my grandfather, who he lost his memory in old age when I was a teenager. Mm. And it was kind of too early for me to have any serious conversations with him about agricultural tech and farm irrigation, which is kind of his specialty. Uh, or in wind power tech and the battery tech that he was inventing. That was something that he tinkered with. Uh, I mean, in the 1970s, he was dreaming of a day when homes would be powered by batteries charged by wind chargers. I mean, wow. so he was already working on that in, in 1998 on houses that didn't even have running water. Huh? He was trying to electrify them with a windmill. So it was amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, and so those similar dreams of his of what electricity could do are only really now coming true. Uh, but I knew he had a machine shop. Uh, he was a tinkerer, and I saw his aluminum projects up close as a boy, um, and his windmills, very creative windmills. Um, but only recently have I studied the patents and news clippings mm. of uh, of him and his incredible brothers and their inventiveness. So my grandfather never went to school past eighth grade, a uh, typical farm boy, uh, but he was called on by the military uh, to reinvent aiming computers in, in World War II, not microchip computers like we think of computers, but like an aiming device that was used in World War II, and he did that, and he re-engineered it, and was just really good at, at engineering at that level. Um, but then he did most of his inventing in Nebraska, in rural farmland, and uh, you see my last name swinging on uh, irrigation sprinklers in Nebraska, huh. and huh. that's my grandfather's brother specifically, uh, same family tree. Uh, but So I don't think my story is unique, though. Um, I think a lot of readers of my book already have told me um, that there's inventiveness in their own, you know, story, in their own history, in their own grandfathers and fathers, and so. Mm. Um, but it, you know, it all raises this question of like, if if inventiveness is in our bloodlines so closely to so many of us, and we live in a, a tech age like no other age has experienced before, it it raises those questions of where does this impulse to in, invent things come from? 
Um, uh, how does this tech impulse live with faith? Does it coexist with faith? Is it unbelief? Is it rebellion? Is it God honoring? And uh, how are we supposed to have those innovations um, in a way that honors God? Are we even supposed to have these powers? Like, are we supposed to have battery powers and uh, nuclear power? And are we supposed to have computer processors? Like, is this human rebellion at its core? Or is it something that honors God? So lots of questions get raised. Um, and uh, I think all of us live with some sort of inventiveness within our bloodstream. And it's, it just raises those questions pretty naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've noticed, and I want to get into this as we keep talking, maybe uh, a conflict within us, uh, a, a uncertainty that we have about answers to some of those questions. Is technology good? Is it bad? Are there limits to what we should pursue versus, you know, at some point does it become playing God? Before we jump into some of that stuff, though, I wonder if you could just simply define technology, because I think it's one of those words that we probably immediately think of the smartphone in our pocket. We think of electronics, we think of microchips. Uh, But how would you define that general term technology? Yes, technology is the the making of a technique, the using of a technique to amplify native human powers. Um, so we go back to even David's sling uh, against Goliath. That was a form of technology. Goliath, obviously, is the techno giant. He is like an army in one man, this warrior who was bred to slay, you know, nations and who had collected the greatest war armory uh, that anyone had ever seen. I mean, this guy would take over. Um, take over his enemy in, in in the field, and then he would plunder and take whatever tech he wanted. And so when, when Goliath steps out to go toe-to-toe with David, he is literally shrouded in the greatest armory of his age. I mean, he is... He is the F-22, he is the Raptor, he's the, you know, the F-35, whatever jet, whatever drone, whatever military weapon you think of today, like he was elite in that way. But David was not anti-technology, he was not without technology, he used a more primitive technology, which was a sling, which amplified the power of his arm and uh, concentrated power into a single stone, which uh, for this battle, he, he shows himself to be the superior technologist because he knows that this is a this is a, a this is a battle where a sniper can beat someone who's going uh, into battle as a hand to hand combat type of a warrior. So Goliath could take out ten guys easier than than David could, but David could take out one guy at a distance because he knows his technology better. Mm. Um, and so he's a master technologist in that way. And so both of those are technologies, but they amplify the power of its users. So Goliath has this huge sword. He can kill lots of men. David has this sling, and he can kill animals and humans with it, and he knows he can. So they're both using technology. Both of them are technologies. Both of them amplify um, the native powers that each of the, the men has. Now, Saul has this idea before the battle. He's like, hey, David, try on my stuff. Try on my tech. And, and David doesn't have the skill to use it. So you have to have some sort of skill to wield uh, a sword, and David doesn't have that yet. He will. Uh, after he defeats Goliath, he takes Goliath's sword, and uh, David will have uh, armor and uh, a shield and a sword from there on out as a king of Israel. Uh, but he doesn't at that point, and he doesn't have the practice. He doesn't know how to wield a sword. He doesn't have the muscle buildup. He doesn't have the, the technique to wield the technology. So... That's kind of where I start in my book is defining technology in those two guys. Mm, Yeah. Uh, It seems to me like uh, so often when we think of that word technology in our own culture today, and this might get at some of the the wrong ways that we then apply it and think about it later, um, we can be so focused on new technology 
Is there a certain dynamic where old technology that we're used to that just feels like it's everywhere, we almost don't think of it as tech anymore. We just kind of, it seems like it leaves that category and becomes just some assumed thing. Have you noticed that dynamic? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, one computer programmer says uh, humorously, he says, uh, technology is anything that was made after you were born. You know, anything (laughs) invented after you were born is technology. And we do lose a sense of just how much technology there is around us that was here before we were born. And you can see this, I go back and spend quite a bit of time looking at 1863 to 1913, this 50 year period, uh, which was uh, basically the the watershed of technological innovation in world history. I mean, it's absolutely incredible what happened between 1863 and 1913. Um, cities were electrified. I mean, light bulbs were invented to, to illuminate houses. Electrical motors came to power industry. Music was first recorded. Photography was first employed. Video recording was invented. Uh, made movies were projected in that that time frame. Huge iron vessels uh, went back and forth across the ocean. Gas powered engines started to pop. Cars replaced carriages. Um, tractors replaced farm horses. Typewriters were invented. The QWERTY keyboard that we use today was invented. Gum was invented. Coca Cola was invented. Telegraph wires began sending electric messages. That was new. No one had sent a message electronically over great distances at unthinkable uh. speeds. Wireless radios you know, drew huge crowds together. Uh, medical advances uh, in germs and vaccines ended awful killing diseases and viruses. Literally everything in life changed between 1863 and 1913. And so what I find is that For a lot of Christians, when you mention tech, they want to go immediately to the most dangerous, scary tech, nuclear tech, genetic uh, engineering, cloning of humans, the metaverse. They want to go to nuclear power, nuclear bombs, like like all of these scary tech tend to be the things that we go to naturally in our mind. So it's helpful to sort of break out of that and go Mm. back to a period um, in which we don't feel the threat of any of those, those things. We see the fruit of those innovations and we live with all of that every single day. Um, and so you start to, I think, can get a better God-centered vision of, of technology and the benefits that we have from it by getting out of our age. And I think yeah. that's really important. Yeah, let's dig into that that dystopianism, though, that seems so prevalent in our culture when it comes to tech. Yeah. Uh, first, uh, and, I, and I guess I think you often see that dystopian uh, impulse or uh, concern in uh, dystopian movies. We see so many tech dystopia movies that seem like they come out, maybe also in books uh, as well and other kinds of um, media contexts. But I wonder if you could uh, share, what's your your favorite tech dystopian movie, if you have one? Uh, and then why do you think that's such a popular theme in our culture? What's going on behind that? Yeah, that's that's a huge question. Um, I like Cormac McCarthy's The the Road. I haven't seen the movie, but I've read the book. I like the book a lot. That's a, and that's a dark and depressing book. It is. It is. So what, 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 uh, is well, it he's a dark and depressing, he's a dark and depressing writer. I don't know. Maybe that's more of my inner personality, but, um, I mean, the, the popularity with dystopian media today is owing to, I think, two different factors. Um, partly I think it's just owing to the fact that there's entertainment value in thrills and roller coasters and horror films. And, and there's just a lot of intrigue, um, when you think about the burning landscape of a post-apocalyptic movie or or the novel like McCormick, McCormick McCarthy's uh, The Road, it's just 
um, there's something for there's something in us that wants to be frightened. We 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 love a little self-induced panic attack every now and again. Um, more widespread, I think uh, we just love control. Though I think that's what it comes down to. We love control, and um, you know when you think of the serious preppers, when you think of the real serious preppers, like the ones that have uh, you know a thousand pounds of dry beans in a, a bunker underground ready for the worst. I mean, those folks are control freaks. They're con control freaks in in full flex. And in such an uncertain world that we have with potent natural disasters and social chaos that's so easily provoked, I think that we think, we think that if, if, if I can only play out the very worst scenario, then I can prep for that thing. Mm. Um, so it's about control. It's about feelings of self-security. And so off we go, hunting for the most fearful, worst, plausible, possible scenario that we can find. And if I'm ready for that, if I'm ready for that worst case scenario tomorrow, uh, then I can live self-secure self today. Yeah. Uh, so it's about control and the antithesis of faith really is what it is. And so I think that's really deep in us. This control freak lives inside of us. And so we listen to our fortune tellers, the tech prophets. And we hear, you know, you tell us what jobs are doomed by artificial intelligence in 20 years, right? Because if we know which which jobs are doomed, mm -hmm. uh, we can begin to build new skills. We can we can cheat the system. We can beat the system. AI won't get us. That's the a similar kind of control freakiness uh, without the beans in the bunker. But it's it's inevitable that our culture's media is going to feed this. The appetite's always been there. Uh, it will get ratings, um, but I think it's just one innovative way that sinners use to try and cope with a fallen world where we have no guarantees, uh, where our fortunes can change in a flash. And so the appetite for tech dystopian sci-fi fiction, television, movies, novels, uh, it's as old as tech itself. And uh, I think it's that inner prepper inside of us, inside this desire for dystopian media, for doom scrolling, for black mirror dramas yeah. um and i think for uh even the pundits on 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 cable tv i mean i think that drives it too you know so we're recording this on january 6th you know like if your pundits convince you that your uh political rivals are are taking over the national government then it seems right and justified to pull off a preemptive coup um and use force if needed you know so we're very willing to entertain the most dire plausible possible forecasts so that we can take control take action and a little of that is in all of us we all want control and that's why dystopian media i think is so popular and it, it will be its addictive appeal is always to our our inner prepper our inner control freak yeah yeah you write in the book uh quote i know that this book would market better as an alarmist doomsday warning about how satan hijacked the electrical grid controls us through our smartphones and wants to implant us with the digital mark of the beast and that kind of puts a point on um, both the tech side and this doomsday thinking yeah and i guess i wonder do you think christians in particular are especially susceptible to this kind of uh dystopian tech dystopia mindset I think they do. They, I think Christians can um, uh, fall in line with the sort of godless tech dystopian uh, vision that a lot of uh, non-Christians live with, where God is not in the picture, God's dead, he's not there, uh, we are gods, we are the ones who are in charge of providence, we are the ones who are self-evolving, uh, and this follows out of the God is dead movement. If God is dead, we are the gods, we are the ones who are in control, um, which feels great for about a nanosecond. 
Uh, and then that feeling of power gives way to utter terror. Uh, and so the atheist's work for decades has been to undermine the faith, and it's worked on many who have deconstructed and left the faith, but it also leads to this, uh, this existential reality that if God is dead, we, we are the gods. Each of us now self-evolving gods, self-evolving by means of our latest technology, and once again, the survival of the fittest. Uh, it's the survival of the most uh, intricately programmed. It's my race to be more sophisticated than you. And that introduces a new degree of co uh, competitive self-evolution within humanity. You have the users and the used. You have the adept and the naive. You have the programmers and the programmed. You have the early adopter and the late adopter, the augmented, the unaugmented. And all of us know we're going to lose this race. Um, and so we're left to wield providence of our own and to wield that providence over ourselves through our tech. And it's just not working. We're not safer from ourselves. We're not more uh, self-assured. Um, in fact, if you, if you layer on top of that, like climate uh, change uh, in a way that, uh, you know, views climate change as though it's basically irreversible, go to Mars or die. Um, that utter despair wins out in the end. And so it turns out that to be gods augmented with supernatural powers is not leading us to the self-saving confidence that um, we thought we would have. Instead, we get TV shows like Black Mirror. We get the tech dystopianism. And so what I'm pleading with Christians, and this is, this is going back to your question, what I'm pleading with Christians to do is before you follow suit and follow the godless tech dystopians of the world into this despairing vision of the world, would you please consider something else? Because uh, I am a tech optimist, and I'm a tech optimist because I know that God is not dead. Uh, he's the creator, uh, and his entire creation is contingent, meaning that the, the creation answers uh, not for its own existence or for its own reason for being. The creation gives us no reason for why it exists. The creation is not sustained by itself. Um, it's, not uh, it's not sustained by powers from its own order. It is governed by one who is outside of the created order, who upholds all things by the power of his word. And mm. so do you, Christian, really believe that? At the end of the day, is God dead or does God reign? Because that will shape everything um, that you think about how you engage with technology, we think of human innovation, because if you do believe God reigns, that's going to change everything. And I do. And that glorious reality shapes everything that I know about big tech, Silicon Valley, and the story of human in innovation. It's, it's all shaped by what I understand about God. And so what I'm saying is, let's stop following the tech dystopians who are now their own gods. And let's think about this as Christians with an open Bible, and particularly yeah. for us who are Reformed, because we have a vision of God that answers for all of these questions that we face. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine someone listening right now responding to that saying, you know, I do believe God is sovereign over all things and all of history. And so I, I, I don't think that this world is just governed by human innovation and our own efforts and abilities. And yet they still might say God in his sovereignty has historically allowed terrible technologies to develop and be used for terrible evil. Yeah. And so I still, uh, how is it still not okay for me to be pretty concerned about where we're going, uh, what's in the future? Yeah, so the question of like, how does God reign over technology uh, it goes back to the, the, the fact of contingent creation. Uh, like the creation doesn't just self-exist, like God is here sustaining it. 
And so everything that we invent, everything that we use, all of it, all of our tech, our science, our engineering, our innovation, things that are destructive, things that are virtuous, all of it is actually highly constrained. Uh, that's one of the interesting things I think that readers will take away from the book for all the human innovation that we have, all the things that we can employ, which seems infinite to us. It seems like it's unlimited, like we can do anything we want. It's, it's actually very narrowly channeled and constrained and controlled by, by God. And it's constrained in nine ways that I lay out in the book. Like the whole book is basically my argument that God has constrained our human inventiveness in nine ways in which he limits everything that we can create, everything that we can invent. Um, he's the one who decides. And it takes a whole book to explain this, but that's mm. the sum. I mean, all of our tech making is highly constrained. And, and and contained by God's providential power and by his created patterns. So if it does seem as though like humans are just able to impose their will on creation and make whatever they want, um, it's actually an opposite way of thinking, that the, this world is highly con constrained by mm. what God makes available to us and what he makes possible in uh, our creativity. Yeah. yeah, in the book you make the case for the idea of a biblical theology of technology. Yeah. And my sense is that that could strike a lot of people uh, as maybe a little bit odd. We think of biblical theology and we think of themes like salvation, judgment, uh, God's sovereignty, that kind of thing. Technology doesn't maybe top the list of, of biblical themes yeah. that we would be able to study and learn something about from Scripture, uh, and yet you say it's there. So I wonder if you could... Um, Help us understand why you think that that's a valid way to approach Scripture. Yeah, and it's not only there, it's like there on page two or three. Uh, it's right there in Genesis 4. Uh, we find human culture making uh, within the scope and interest of biblical revelation. This is something that Herman Bobbing makes. He makes this point. I think it's in his Ethics, Volume 2. Bobbing says, look at Genesis 4. It's amazing that God is pulling human inventiveness into the storyline of Scripture. He's, he wants mm. that to be part of the story of the Bible right there in Genesis 4. Uh, that's a simple but profound point. And so, yeah, I've written a biblical theology of technology, as I call it. Uh, what I mean is that um, I've looked at the Bible canonically from Genesis to Revelation uh, to look at this theme of innovation, of human innovation, and how it's described to us in God's unfolding revelation to explain how he is at work in the drama of human industry and you find these cues you find these markers all throughout and one of the things that i one of the things that i found as i was researching this book and and meditating on all of these themes is and this is a spoiler alert but when it comes <laughs> down to it i mean the the biblical theology of human innovation is really nothing different than uh, a biblical theology of the city so as you as you watch the city developed and all of its tensions, so like early on, like God's God's faithful men aren't going to live in a city; they're going to live in tents, right? And then you eventually see the God's people living in cities, and then you get to Revelation two three, where God's people are being given commands and promises who live in cities. Like how do you live out the Christian life in cities? It's very much. Uh, innovation in cities are wrapped together. That's true historically, that's true in biblical theology, is that the story of technology and the story of urban centers are basically one story. And so, yeah, a biblical theology of technology may seem novel, but it really just is a, a biblical theology of the city. Hmm. Which, that in and of itself as a theme, would probably uh, not be something that many of us have thought much about when it comes to Scripture. You know, we just think of, oh, this person went to live there or lived yeah. in a tent in the wilderness, yeah. and we don't think anything of it. We just think, oh, that's just what happened. But you, you would say there's kind of more to it than that? Uh, it's a very complicated story. Yeah, when you start out and you see, like, 
uh, God's initial commands to his, his children are stay away from the city, stay away from Cain's cities. Uh, they're centers of rebellion. And the Bible ends kind of that way with Babylon. Um, the, the city is the center of human rebellion, but it's also a place that is leavened by the presence of God's people. And so it's a, it's a complex relationship. You have mm. to understand uh, the city. And I think, honestly, beneath a lot of the church's tech pessimism today stems from an anti-urban bias. Interesting. And we start pressing into that anti-technology bias. What, what's there is an anti-urban bias. And mm. so that's got to be worked through. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the other things that you do in your book is you explore... Uh, 12 myths about technology that Christians often fall into and believe in your experience. And I wanted to just talk about just a couple of them. Uh, the first one uh, being the myth that human innovation is an inorganic imposition forced onto the created order. Um, and I think this myth is particularly interesting because I'm not sure that we always know that we're falling prey to it. But it, it, I wonder if you would agree that is is this what's behind perhaps the way that we can instinctively prefer things that are natural versus synthetic, or maybe even when Christians charge scientists with playing God when developing new technologies. Are those examples related to what you're talking about? 100%, exactly. Yeah, when I look at the world around me, I see an incredibly rich material universe, uh, which is a playground for us to invent inside, and it's a playground that's carefully bounded by finite possibilities, right? And so when I... When I look at uh, the sunrise, I see God's glory uh, in a way that's untouched by humans, right? But when I pick up my smartphone, I see another form of his glory, which is reflected to my eyes in 60 elements that have been pulled from the creation that God patterned there for us to find, have been refined, and have now brought forth this technology called the iPhone that I hold in my hand. This is um, humans working in tandem with the created order that God has given us, such that we would not see God's glory in the smartphone unless we invented the smartphone. And how that we did, we with eyes to see, yeah, there's sinful ways that you can abuse the, the iPhone, but the iPhone, for many of us, is an incredible gift that God has given us for ministry, for productivity, to serve our families, and to love others. And if we can see God's glory in that, um, that that that's a win. That's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I want you to see God's glory in the sunrise. I want you to see God's glory in the sunset. I want you to see God's glory in the iPhone in your hand. Do not grow blind to the glory of God in what's in your hand. Don't think of the material universe as some, something that's evil or something that's uh, separate from God's generosity. And that's what I'm trying to do is build eyes to see God's glory in it. And that was something that Reformed theologians were working through from Calvin and Abraham Kuyper in earlier centuries. They had developed this idea of common grace, and it was it was it, Christians had eyes to see um, what God has given us. And I think uh, my theory is that what happened is then we had World War One, we had World War Two, we had the Cold War, and um, once you see that an atomic bomb can incinerate a hundred thousand people in a hyperblink, you're you're how you talk about technology is going to be more uh, restrained. It's going to be more sobered by not just the possibilities of flourishing, but the possibilities of destruction. And so I think what happened beginning in World War II, then especially in World War II and following, is the, the church's theologians simply lost 
uh, grip on common grace. They lost the, the, the vision of the, the beauty of God in our technological advances. We could no longer see him. We could see the, the powers of it. And we get, you know, novels like C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, which is a great book on the misuse of technology. It's a great book against post-transhumanism post, uh, uh, and this impulse to, you know, scientifically evade death, which is something that we see still alive today. He was a prophet uh, going after technological abuses. Uh, but someone like C.S. Lewis really struggled to see anything positive or God glorifying a technology. And I think that that was just pretty, pretty common um, yeah. among our theologians from um, really ending with Abraham Kuyper. And then once the world wars happen, it's very hard for the theologians to see um, God's glory shining in, in theology. So that's kind of, I think that's why we have to go back to this earlier vision that was building in Calvin and uh, came to ultimate fruition in church history and the works of Abraham Kuyper um, and have that vision and, and reclaim it. Are there limits to uh, the good of technology? Uh, and not, not even talking about how it can be misused. I think we'd all agree a good thing can be misused and then that becomes a, a bad thing that, yeah. that's happened. But you think of... Um, you know, are there are there just fundamentally wrong ways to try to put together the things of creation that God has given to us? Uh, but they're just it's so dangerous. It's such a uh, it maybe is in some sense kind of pushing against in a sinful way the natural order of things that God has instilled in his created in his creation that would make it inherently wrong. Yeah, I think um, the the building of the Tower of Babel was explicitly uh, rejection of God's word. We're not going to spread across the globe. We're going to compile ourselves into one city. We're going to build a a temple to human glory, and so they're using um, you know they're using fire baked bricks, which was a new technology for them. They were using that in a sinful way. They were using tar to put those those bricks together in a sinful way in building their temple, and so that was a sinful use. Um, but in this, in in one of these climactic moments of humans using engineering in an anti-God way, and in a way to reject God, God simply comes down and hacks the whole thing, and instead of having one city, he spreads his people all over the globe. He spreads those people all over the globe, and so that we have a thousand cities. And so it's again, it's this vision of yes, technology can be misused and sinfully so. We never, never more so than in the cross and what we see uh, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ using metallurgy, using um, uh, uh, Roman torture in a way to to kill our Savior. Um, and so, technology can be used in very sinful ways, in the most sinful ways. But God is always there, hacking sovereignly over those events, breaking in and uh, turning them for good. And so there are misuses of technology, but to say, well, therefore we've stiff-armed God out of the picture is wrong. And so mm. that's what I'm trying to to resist is this idea of seeing technology misused and somehow God becoming then powerless. He's not. Yeah. It seems like the, the discussion over or the debate over uh, – natural versus synthetic or, you know, technology versus natural uh, has been on full display over the last couple of years when it comes to the COVID pandemic and vaccine technology. Uh, has anything about the way that Christians have responded to this whole issue surprised you? There's a lot to say about COVID. Um, uh, COVID vaccines were providential in the timing of my book project. Um, 
my book began as a series of lectures. One of them uh, I gave in Seattle as the city was shutting down. Mm. Uh, I'll never forget it. It was the evening of March 11th, 2020. I, I was getting ready for dinner. I was going to uh, teach on Genesis 4, kind of the... Uh, the origins of industry, and I had ESPN playing on the background as I was getting ready. And ESPN is like breaking news, like uh, the city of uh, Seattle is shutting down. I'm in the city. I'm like, what is shutting down? Like, what does that mean? I'm stuck here. Uh, does the airport shut down? Like, what? You know, how does that work? And I'm looking out the window, and the uh, the rush hour traffic is not as bad as it should be, you know? And so people are clearly at home. And the, so the, the city is shutting down and I'm just like, what is going on? It's so ominous. And then ESPN is saying, uh, the NCAA basketball tournament's not going to ha- happen this year. Uh, major league baseball is suspending operations, NBA, hockey, all of that canceled, done. And I'm just like, this is crazy. What's going on? So I was right there. Uh, in Seattle when this was happening. So I naturally sort of covered um, uh, the virus from the inside of things. And it was really fascinating to do so uh, as I wrote the book because there's powerful biases that work in politics and in science. Um, even from the early days of, of slowing the spread in New York City, shutting down cities like Seattle, and then with the vaccine rollouts, all of it exposed certain biases at play and how we talk about God and human innovation. Um, are we battling this virus with God's grace or by uh, sheer human devised science? Is this rebellion? Is it honoring to God? Huge debates. And wherever you land on the mRNA vir- uh, vaccine right now, uh, for Christians, it was just so fascinating to to watch this conversation play out. Um, and so I think there's a lot of different things to say about the vaccine itself. Our vaccines remain under the polarity of Babylon. Of, of the Tower of Babel. I go into this in the book in the sense that one of the gracious things that God does is he he confuses the languages. He spreads languages all the way. One of the, thing, one of the fallouts to that is that each culture thinks differently about the world. Um, there's this natural built-in breaking system when it comes to human, human innovation where it's not like everybody now can say yes in universal chorus. There's now these these uh, these hedges, these these built-in checks and balances, um, built into cultures, so that one culture may love biometric, you know, facial recognition, and another culture says, "No way, government coercion is going to happen uh, if we do this." And so there's those tensions, and we saw that kind of tension play out with the virus. Uh, with the vaccine as well. And so not surprising, there was a lot of debate. Should we be using it? Should we not be using that? I, I think that's that's healthy. That's a healthy tension that we need. Um, but we also need to think of um, where is our place in the tech tree of virus uh, vaccinations? Where do we find ourselves in a history of unfolding innovations? Instead of saying that tech is threatening, let's stop it and shut it down. Let's say the mRNA vaccination, where does that fit in the tech tree? Is that going to lead to something greater and better in the future so that we can respond more quickly to global outbreaks? And so Mm. it's kind of hard, I think, for Christians to, again, kind of see themselves in in sort of an unfolding pattern that God has for innovation and just want to say thumbs up or thumbs down on this vaccination, make a final judgment. And so it, it, it gets tricky. Because it's it, our temptation is to make a final judgment on it instead of seeing ourselves in part of a longer trajectory. So, but yeah. I would not necessarily discount it's uh, the the science of it and say, well, it's rebellion because it's tinkering around with genetics. I don't necessarily go there, and I think there's good reasons for not 
just rushing to that conclusion. Yeah. Another uh, topic that is often in the headlines and kind of, uh, I think, can produce a low-level nervousness among people, Christians included, is the topic of artificial intelligence. And uh, you've already alluded to this once. I think we all appreciate, most of us, appreciate the the power of Siri and Alexa in our yeah. pockets and, and understand that the benefit that brings. But it also, uh, there's talk of AI destroying jobs, as you said, and harming our ability to think for ourselves as humans. Would you say that AI is fundamentally different than technological developments that have come in the past? Not necessarily, because it's, again, it's unfolding. It's an unfolding tech tree. So it has uh, uh, predecessors earlier. Uh, artificial intelligence is a label that it bleeds into a couple of different categories that might be helpful to, to lay out. So um, it pops up in two ways. The first being um, AI is sometimes used for supercomputers that are processing huge amounts of data at lightning speeds. Um, that's all it's meant. So you have huge media platforms that scrape data, you know, from uh, from its users, and then they use AI to process that data. That's one use. Or you can think of self-driving cars, um, which is a maybe a little more tangible example. Mm. Uh, what amounts to an autonomous robot is basically what a what a self-driving car is, um, and it's self-directed by drawing huge amounts of input from sensors. And it gathers an immense data stream that then gets processed in real time by powerful computers that can steer a car or steer a semi-truck now down a street. And so that's one very common category where you hear AI emerge, which is supercomputers processing lots of data to identify patterns and to carry out actions beyond the speed of human computation and response. Um, but AI, more true to its definition, um, refers to uh, the singularity. Um, a point in time in which this computers... is starting to sound like starting to sound a little bit like Star Trek. So, like, yeah, yeah help us. Yeah, yeah. What what does that term mean? So, singularity is the point of a point in time in which computers collectively awaken into one unified autonomous consciousness, with a new native creativity beyond what the human engineers put into it. Hmm. Uh, and and so in that scenario, all of our jobs are gone. Like AI is going to take over the world, take over, <laughs> you know, all of that. Uh, AI is going to be doing the podcast hosting. AI is going to be doing the podcast answering. AI does everything. And so the, the first <laughs> definition um, of AI is becoming real. And you see it in self-driving cars. You see it in the new Cold War brewing between China and America. Um, each trying to buy up as many computer chips as possible. It's a race because nat uh, our national defense systems require new intelligence uh, that can perceive patterns in data and, uh, and execute uh, actions at superhuman speeds. So you think of uh, Israel's Iron Dome. I don't know if you've seen uh, video of, of Israel's Iron Dome, for example. That's a very yeah. graphic, tangible example of an AI model. So that's here. It's happening. However, the second definition of AI is science fiction. Uh, it's mm. unrealistic. Uh, I just read Eric Larson's new book on the myth of artificial intelligence. And he says right now, if you look at the fact that nothing's really been developed in this uh, towards progress in this at all he calls it um he calls artificial intelligence in the second definition at best a scientific unknown hmm. but nevertheless for fun in the book i do enter into the direst forecasts the direst forecast let's play it out so let's say ai takes all of our jobs away in the next 30 years uh what does the church have anything to say 
Maybe as a final question, uh, a few weeks back, uh, Facebook, uh, now rebranded as Meta, uh, announced uh, the upcoming launch of their Metaverse. Um, and I think there were a lot of different responses to it, many of them kind of mocking responses to uh, this keynote that they uh, that they delivered. I wonder if you could speak to first, what what is the metaverse for those who have heard the term but are kind of like confused as to what's going on? And how should Christians think about um, this whole new uh, realm of kind of online identities and engaging, living in community online in some way? Yeah, so the metaverse, um, I would define the metaverse as a new private, new privatized surveillance state, basically. <laughs> Okay. That would be my definition. But yeah, what it is, is basically it's a place where you can live online to an avatar. Um, you can uh, have real estate, you know, virtual real estate. You can have your own house. You can decorate your house. You can buy things for it. If you've read the book Ready Player One uh, or you've you, you've uh, these kind of um, ideas of being um, being able to live in existence and whether it's in gaming. I mean, gaming has opened the door. This is basically gaming writ large for non-gamers right we're mm. being pulled into the metaverse which is it's gaming it's entertainment but it's also work it's like instead of zooming you can actually go into a you know virtual room with your coworkers, and it's a little more immersive um uh and so it, it's promising in some sense that i think there's always going to be need for virtual uh meetup spaces um i don't know to the extent of how much this is going to develop um uh, I think it's going to be, I, I think gaming goggles are a hard sell for a lot of people. They just don't want to have a screen st you know, taped to their face. Uh, it's kind of goofy, but there might be some other manifestation um, of the, the virtual space that's a little less less awkward, but um, it's, it's hard to say. But there's, I mean, it's worrisome in some ways. One is, you know, who whoever is the keeper of this metaverse is going to have access to surveillance on behaviors like never before. I mean, it's going to be, um, it's going to raise all sorts of questions about privacy. But it's just one of the one of the many other technologies that you know raise questions for us. You know, isn't social media destroying the the social fabric of a democracy? Um, isn't Amazon growing into a monopoly? Uh, aren't you know, AI bots going to take over all of our jobs? You know, are we only going to survive in the workforce if we have this brain machine interface with some part of our brain connected to a computer? Um, on and on it goes. I mean, there's a lot of scary tech. There's things to be worried about. There's problems. But what's the, the challenge is the church always wants to talk about technology in light of the metaverse in light of ai in light of driverless driverless cars in light of amazon in light of all of these scary techs or things that are going to um damage society in some way and we never break free from that discussion and go macro and and think of where do these technologies come from what is god's plan um, and see his glory in the electricity, see his glory in the smartphone that we use, in the computer, in the cameras, in the lights, in the houses, the businesses, the banking systems. Like all, We just go through this list of things that we take for granted every single day. And what I don't want is for Christians to get lost on sort of the big headlines and miss the fact that they are 
the beneficiaries of some incredible tech. So that's my biggest concern. Can we build a theology of tech or is it only ever going to come up when it's time to pounce on some mm. new scary thing? That's my task. And so <clears throat> and so the work before me is uh, reaching the listener out there who has a podcast app open, listening to us on their iPhone at 1.3x speed. That's the speed <laughs> I listen to everything in. You know, driving down the highway in a, an SUV, a technologically advanced SUV, I don't want that listener to come away from this conversation thinking, wow, that one tech is really scary. That one tech is really going to change things because that would sell, right? The dystopian content sells. You provoke that inner prepper. Instead, what I'm after is a listener and a reader of the book to thank God to thank God for the ancient sludge that he put into the ground that was sucked up and refined so that he could propel himself down the highway at 50 miles per hour through the power of ex exploding power, uh, exploding fireball in the engine in the front of his car. He is going down the highway right now listening to speakers of a recording that we're making right now on his iPhone, a digital file that somehow got sucked out of the air into his iPhone, his iPhone being 60 elements taken from creation. I want listeners to see that. And so for a lot of Christians, um, it's going to feel weird and uneasy to speak of tech as a means of worship, but that's good. That's where I want to be. I want to press in on that. And so when we think about scary tech, the ultimate, um, the ultimate ca catastrophe that I see right now that I'm pressing back on uh, is not that AI is going to take our jobs away, not that... Um, uh, the metaverse is going to dehumanize us and make us lose our embodiment. The catastrophe that I see right now today is that God's glory and his kindness is shining on us through thousands of technological gifts, and our hearts are simply too dull to see his generosity. And that's a huge problem, and we need to call it out. And so I hope if I can change that, and my book seeps into the groundwater of Christians, uh, and became, it becomes sort of like a framework by which we can then understand technology. I think in a few years, we can have really good discussions about the metaverse, really good discussions mm. about AI, really good discussions about the problem tech that we see because they're there, there's problem tech. Um, but because of how we talk about them, we end up with a pretty lopsided and godless framework to go about those conversations. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you, Tony, so much for taking the time to talk with us today and help give us some of that framework, help us start thinking along those lines, perhaps in a, in a maybe a new way uh, for many of us. But yeah, we appreciate your time. My joy, Matt. Thanks for having me on. That was Tony Ranke on Thinking Christianly about human innovation and technology. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, God, Technology, and the Christian Life. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.